So welcome to the Guardians of the Flame podcast, everyone. Uh, we're sitting in a little house in the, I guess, town of Musenberg, which is just outside Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, it's a real privilege to be with um, Renee August, who's a theologian, an Anglican priest, and she works with an organization called The Warehouse, um, which she can maybe explain a little bit more about. But I was very moved uh, and amazed to hear about their work and their call to uh, resource thousands of churches, I guess, in, in South Africa, and but to particularly, um, but particularly she's, I guess, passionate about justice and um, a theology that is rooted in the in scripture, but that also should be relevant to any context in the world, and particularly here in South Africa. And um, so thanks, Renee, for taking the time to talk to us. Sure, you're welcome. Um, uh, could you just, uh, the people listening, I guess there are South Africans who will listen to this, but I'd say most people listening are maybe Europeans, Irish, British, Americans. Um, probably a lot don't know a whole lot about South Africa, the South African context, but can you just um, give us a bit of your background and how, your background and you know, who you are, but also then how you got into doing what you're doing. Thanks, yes, it's good to be here. Um, I grew up in South Africa during a time when I think the liberation struggle against apartheid was at its most intense. Um, I was born in the early 70s, and so finishing high school in the 80s um, gave me a particular experience of South Africa. I grew up in a black family where we never spoke about politics, because even though some people would think the issues were pretty black and white, um, the apartheid system was undergirded through a theology that was developed long before it was a political system. And so scripture was used, a framing theological narrative was used, and one that I noticed um, come up quite a lot in my own family was is one that God is in control, or God is sovereign, and so if God is in control and all these bad things are happening, then surely God must have a plan. And if we were to fight against these things that are happening to us, then we would be fighting the sovereignty of God or we would be somehow disrupting or thwarting God's plan. Mm -hmm. And so our job was to continue to love our neighbor as ourself, whatever that means, mm -hmm. um, and then to, you know, keep on praying and to use a Romans 8 narrative, Romans 13, sorry, not yeah, Romans yeah, 8, yeah. Romans 13 narrative um, of praying for the government, submitting to authority, submitting to earthly authority as you would to God, that those were two of the narratives that I heard in my family and certainly in my neighborhood, Mitchell's Plain. And then another one was um, God's dream for the world is that we love our neighbors, we love ourselves, and so apartheid is a violation of the very dream of God. And for us as the hands and feet of Jesus on earth, for us as the children of God, we it's our work to make God's dream come true. Mm -hmm. um, it's our work to help 
make it possible within society and within the systems that exist for us to be able to love one another and to live in harmony with one another. So those conflicting stories are ones that I grew up with. Um, each particular opinion was rooted in scripture, had a theological base, and had a church that supported that particular narrative. And so um, I quickly realized that I couldn't make the Bible say anything I wanted it to say. And depending on who was reading it, um, we could overemphasize truth and in this overemphasis of truth create our own heresies. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so um, <clears throat> I, I was growing up in a different part of the world, but a similar kind of time, and I was watching the news. Um, I was reading about the Dutch Reformed Church that that gave the theological f- framework for apartheid. Um, and and then in the 80s, I remember hearing about, always hear about Nelson Mandela. There was free Nelson Mandela concerts, and my university has the Mandela Hall. And um, So South Africa was kind of actually quite in the consciousness of a lot of people that I knew in, in, um, in Northern Ireland. Uh, what were you doing at that time? I mean, in the kind of the 80s, were you involved in uh, actual activities you know, anti-apartheid activity in some way, or uh, were you just kind of growing up and trying to survive it? Or I think the term anti-apartheid activity is a very broad term. <laughs> um, I think, to be honest with you, some days it just depended on whether I wanted to be in school or not. So the choice was go on a march or go to class, and sometimes going on a march for whatever reason looked like it was going to be more fun than sitting in a classroom. And then there was the very real abuse of power by um, the police and young white men who were forced to serve in the army through conscription who would come and surround our school, um, shoot tear gas canisters at us, beat us up, which obviously caused us to respond with a degree of anger, um, high levels of anger at times, and... And that kind of engagement resulted in what we call political protest. Um, I think looking back right now, um, as I understand the life of Jesus, that was a protest, a political protest. Um, but I guess we we framed it a little differently in those days. How, how do you mean a political Jesus, the life of Jesus was a political protest? <laughs> I know what you mean, but I want you to unpack it. Well, Jesus was born in Palestine, um, and Jesus was Jewish, and Jesus was born to a poor family. Um, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a chariot, not a BMW or a private jet. Um, Jesus was born in a stable. Jesus was born to a young girl, um, and... She was not given recognition or any status, and yet in the gospel story, she's named and celebrated. And so um, everything that power celebrated, um, the life of Jesus questions and reframes and relocates. And every um, expression of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, 
Um, Jesus comes to transform with a piece of Christ. And so Pax Christi um, invites us to lay down our allegiance to Rome, lay down our allegiance to fame, fortune, power, privilege, requires us to turn our attention um, to the geographical location of Jesus, which is in Galilee, in Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, you tell me. Um, and so what are the Nazareth places that we call to? What's the Bethlehem in your location? Each one of those places would require of us to protest power and privilege, to protest empire, um, and to call into question our allegiances. So um, a friend of mine uh, who is a writer and preacher, Brian Zond, has just written this book, Postcards from Babylon, and I guess uh, his thesis, in a way, from what I understand without having read the book, is that if we read the Bible um, through the lens of comfortable Western privilege, sitting by the side of a pool, drinking a pina colada, um, we're going to read something very different from if we read it through the in the context it was actually written. If and his thesis is that you know the Old Testament is a story of uh, a small group of slaves who were in exile, liberated then they're taken into exile. <clears throat> and then in the New Testament, you've got Roman occupation. And, you know, so he's trying to frame the, the gospel through that kind of narrative. And I hear you, that would be, a, I think, would be a kind of a passion of yours or a way that you would certainly see your reading of scripture and theology. How does that work? Is that true? And is, how do you read that in South Africa? What does it look like to read the, to do theology as a South African woman? I would say, yes, that resonates with me um, in reading scripture in that way. And I, I don't think necessarily it's an intention to add to the text mm. things that aren't there. Mm. I think it's an intention to relocate our reading of the scriptures in its original context. Mm. Um, Jesus is born at the time of King Herod, one of the most violent rulers um, of his day who killed a thousand people in a day, crucified them um, because they disagreed with him. And so at the time of King Herod, Jesus is born. So Jesus is not seeking safety and security. And what does that mean for me who say, I follow Jesus? Um, the titles given to Jesus, Messiah, King of Kings, Prince of Peace, those are political titles. King of Kings is not a religious title. Messiah is not a religious title. Um, if Caesar was the prince of Pax Romana and Jesus being the prince of peace, like there's a conversation there that's a political one. And when we acontextualize and disembody Jesus, we, we lose the power of the incarnation. Um, the power of the incarnation is that Jesus chose a side. Jesus really did. Um, Mary and Joseph go to offer Jesus in the temple, and Simeon is waiting for them at the door. Um, and we know the song of Simeon. And so Jesus, Jesus brought into the temple, and Mary and Joseph bring the offering of two doves. That's like if you have no money and no livestock and no land and nothing, if you are poor, then bring two doves. 
And so I consider myself as a black South African woman, as a woman of privilege, in light of the story of Jesus. The incarnation is revealed to the shepherds. Again, that's a social location. Um, Jesus is born in a stable. I don't know if you have children. Have you ever dreamt of them being born in a feeding trough of an animal? No one dreams of that for their children. And yet this is the, the place where the incarnation happens. And so if we are wanting to participate in that incarnation of that location of God on earth with us, God with us happens in geography, it happens socially, it happens economically, it happens politically, and it happens religiously, but that can't be the only lens that we look at it. Mm -hmm. um, we have to look at the fullness, the robust perspective that the Bible gives to us of who Jesus is and, and what the incarnation means. Mm. So I like um, that you're saying you're not adding in something, in, you're not adding something into scripture. You're actually just may, maybe more correctly reading it in the context it was written, you know, and understanding the poverty of Mary and Joseph, which I've been to, I don't know how many church services in my life, I did, maybe, maybe once or twice in 43 years have I heard the socioeconomic status of Mary and Joseph, you know. Um, <clears throat> so um, I think it's very valuable. Uh, what does um, what is your experience of apartheid, um, white privilege, systemic racism, legal racism, you know, racism at every, um, and now the legacy, how does that help you as a theologian? Um, I think, firstly, um, and maybe a little ironically, I, it gives me hope. Um, there were a group of white men who sat in a room and dreamt up a theological idea that gave them privilege and power. Um, they called it apartheid, they made it a political system, and they changed an entire nation. They framed the narrative of 50 million people. And so, when I look at that, I go, hmm, it's possible. It's possible to sit down in a room with a small group of friends and, and to reframe theology um, that can become a system within the world that transforms a nation for the better. Um, maybe, maybe a theology that gives power and privilege to all. Maybe one a little closer to the love your neighbor as you love yourself <laughs> than apartheid was. But um, the story of apartheid does fill me with hope um, that it is possible, it is possible for faith to transform society. And, um, and it means that, you know, if we want to transform this society, that's not a bad place to start. So that's the first thing. Um, the second, I think, in terms of my experience of privilege, and white privilege and power um, is obviously a negative one. Um, in places where I've been silenced and told I should be quiet because I'm a woman, I should be quiet because my skin is not white, I'm not allowed to play on this swing in this park because I'm the wrong color, or this beach is not allowed 
to accommodate people like me. It's the earth is the Lord's and this beach is ours. Um, and so growing up with um, stories that excluded my family and I, um, we were victims of the Group Areas Act, of the Land Act, and were displaced as a result um, in our own country. And so um, all of those things had an impact on us. But there's another part, I guess, that in some ways you you normalize it because you don't know any better or you don't know any different. Um, and so apartheid was so successful at segregation that the people you met and the people you saw in the life that you lived wasn't really compared to anything else. And so there's a degree of acceptance. Um, Biko talks about the most powerful weapon of the oppressor being the mind of the oppressed. Mm. And so the way apartheid created oppression um, was through segregation and, and creating what our minds were able to conceive of. Um, and yeah, I guess that some of that was also survival. Just you can't, you can't just live with anger and fight in you every day. That's exhausting. Um, so you have to find ways of making meaning of the craziness that's happening around you. And um, I'm a mixed bag. Mm. It's not just one story. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's so much we could talk about, but um, maybe I'll touch on South Africa, the story. So I spent a year here in 95, as I told you. My birthday, the 27th of April, is is the um, the day the first democratic elections in South Africa were 27th of April, 1994. Um, <clears throat> and I was here at a time, South Africa won the Rugby World Cup during that year. I beat New Zealand, Jonah Lomu. I was, as my, the Kiwi part of me was very sad as I watched it on a screen in a friend's house in Pretoria. And then that night as we walked through the streets of Pretoria um, to see black and white people dancing, celebrating, lighting fires, eating, it, it I kind of got over the, the loss pretty quickly and thought this is pretty cool, you know. And it, it was an amazing, amazing time to be here, obviously a time of hope. Um, now, uh, I wonder if you could speak into where you're at now in the light of that. And my impression is that there's disappointment, um, there's impatience, as we thought we were getting justice, we thought we were getting white people to think we were getting great reconciliation, it's done now, can we just move on, you know? Um, all sides, are there's an unhappiness. Um, and how, can you speak into that, kind of the situation of this country at the moment? I'll try. Um, bear in mind that it, this is only my perspective. Um, I think the apartheid system was so completely overwhelming, all-encompassing and evil that it's all we could see. I think in hindsight, um, we thought of apartheid as a, a system of racial um, separation, of racial segregation of um, racism but as we look closely to it um, with the privileges of hindsight we see that apartheid was an economic system um, when we look back at the timeline 
of um, the gold rush in Johannesburg, for example, um, you know, years after the Dutch East India Company and the British came and colonized um, the Cape especially, we see that there's economic motivations for um, creating privilege for a minority group. And, and so this sort of seeding of an apartheid ideology, um, together with everything that Hitler stood for, was kind of ready and waiting um, and became fertile ground for this theology of apartheid to emerge. Um, but we can't remove the economic reality from the apartheid system. And I think in hindsight, again, when when you lived with apartheid and you looked at the laws, I mean, it was, we lived, I remember, under a state of emergency when I was in high school. It was an Ill, considered an illegal gathering for more than four people to be in a particular place without police permission if you were not family. So standing at the bus stop was breaking the law. Um... You couldn't say the word the name Nelson Mandela. You would be arrested and detained without trial for up to six months. Um, it was it was ridiculous. Everything about apartheid was ridiculous. And so, when that's the only thing you know, um, then that's the thing you have to fight first. And we thought that as apartheid fell, what would happen, especially post TRC, was not just black forgiveness, but white generosity. And so the country experienced the black forgiveness, but we have not yet experienced the white generosity. Um, there's an uproar in South Africa at the moment about the Land Act and you know people talking about land expropriation without compensation. And my response to that is, well, that already happened in 1913 when they declared 80% of the land in South Africa for the exclusive ownership of white people. Like, that was land expropriation without compensation. And so the conversation today is simply, what are we going to do about that injustice? What are we going to do about that wrong? Um, we find ourselves asking questions, well, why are people poor? But we're not asking, why are people rich? Many friends of mine who grew up in white neighborhoods and white culture and with white privilege um, talk about how hard they worked or their parents worked. But the truth is that even if their parents worked that hard, if they were born black, they would not be as wealthy as they are today. And so, so many people benefit from property and the investment in property. And um, that was certainly something that we as a family suffered um, the consequences of when neighborhoods were declared white or land was declared for the ownership of white people, that all the black landowners in that neighborhood were completely displaced. They were kicked out. There was no compensation. Um, and that had an economic consequence. There's a friend of mine, Charlene Swartz. She's a professor at the HSRC who did some research into um, the economic costs of apartheid or the impact of that on families. And so she interviews this wide range of people. And she then listened to my story. Um, and so as far as just the Group Areas Act, um, not the Land Act, and only on my mother's side, 
um, with regards to one property. She got an economist to do some sums and calculate. So what, what was the economic transaction that happened through this moving from one home to another? And it's more than three million rands worth of difference. You know, growing up in a home that was ours legally, um, that was valued at, you know, 450,000 rand. Um, and we were moved to a house that, after living in it for 20 years, my parents couldn't sell for more than 100,000. Um, they got about 90,000 for it. So, you know, you multiply that over a number of years and um, there's, there's an economic reality to that piece that we have not yet dealt with. And so we looked at the legalization of apartheid and the dismantling of those laws, <clears throat> but we haven't looked at the, the systems that the laws created. Um, and it's those systems that now generate the wealth of the rich and create the poverty of the poor. And that's the place that we now need to do our work. And so I think young people, rightly so, are calling into question what this new South Africa, what's so new in this new South Africa? Mm. Um, there's a part of me that says, well, you didn't see what the old South Africa was like, and that's why you're asking that question. But it's a legitimate question, nonetheless, um, because there's not a lot that's different economically for people. Um, you can live anywhere you want now, but actually, really, is that a choice? Mm when, you know, there's a multi-generational system that's created poverty in your family and you're now not, not able to participate economically in And there's such the a South need African to story. educate. Um, I think even living in the West, you know, Westerners, um, uh, you know, we, if you're a middle-class, privileged European, Brit, Irish, you know, you you kind of just have an idea that everything is okay and everyone can make it if you work hard enough, you know. And um, <clears throat> I, you know, the, the word I always hear when we talk about land um, reform is Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. And I was in Zimbabwe in, um, two, over the millennium, uh, 99, 2000, for about three months. And it was during that time Mugabe won his, the first election that I think was genuinely contested. And he, you know, ever since then he kind of, I think started to go downhill in quite a visible way and the country declined. How do you kind of, I mean, we could talk, talk about this for a long time, but how do you kind of address what happened in Zimbabwe with what you're saying, which makes infinite sense, you know, the systemic injustice that exists in South Africa, the need to just not just move on, but the need to address it. How do you do, I mean, obviously that's the big conundrum. How do you do land reform without getting a Zimbabwe situation and... Yeah, I go back to the phrase um, white generosity. I think it's in everyone's best interest that we redress issues of land, everybody's best interest. Um, there are people who own land that they don't even use. It's completely unproductive. Um, it's lying fallow. And, and people just own it, you know. If you're a family of four and you own three homes, what on earth do you need three homes for? Um, and then there are people who, who don't have a roof over their head. And so how is that beneficial to anyone for one family to own three properties and for another family <clears throat> to not be able to afford a home for themselves? Um, everybody uses Zimbabwe because it is the worst-case scenario. They are our neighbours. Um, and 
I want to say, hey, what if we decide we don't want to be Zimbabwe? What if we say, let everybody decide on a maximum amount of land that one person can own? Let's get the land out of family trusts, because that's one of the arguments. It's not our land. It's in a family trust. We can't sell it. It's not ours to own or ours to sell, but it's yours to benefit from. And so what about us looking at the land and looking at the people and saying, how can we share? Because for me, that's, that's what the gospel is. That's what scripture talks about. Um, I mean, the story of manna in the wilderness. If you took too much and hoarded it, it began to stink. It stinks that people have, some people have too much because God has certainly given us enough. Um, and so there are many ways we can avoid a Zimbabwe. Greed is the only way we will create a Zimbabwe. Um, people holding on to their power, privilege, and land. But every alternative to that makes a whole lot of other scenarios possible. Generosity, yeah. There's just a couple of things that we'd love you to do that would really help us to develop these podcasts. One is by leaving a review and a rating, uh, especially if you're on iTunes. That's where a lot of people find these podcasts and it just helps more people find them if you leave reviews and if you kind of rate them, that would be great. And the other thing, of course, as we'll remind you every episode, is our Patreon site. Um, I would love every episode to just be getting a couple more uh, followers that come along and, and help support the work that we're doing. And if you do that, then it also helps um, us to develop more content. And it also means you'll have access to uh, unseen content, stuff that we don't necessarily have out there in public domain and so it's just a way to not only support us but also get access to unseen footage and of, of, of the film that we've been making or of the podcast we're recording thanks very much for your support I mean I don't want to go down this too much but I just it kind of brings up a question uh, you know I look at Northern Ireland and the Troubles and I think part of what the Troubles did was it helped to create a generation of politicians and leaders, maybe leaders in society, church leaders, who had to be incredibly courageous to build bridges. And, you know, and so it, it almost created a fiber, a moral character, among some, a very small number, sadly. But there was these kind of heroic people. I think of John Hume, Seamus Mellon, to an extent, um, and, and others who really were peacemakers and who were brave and courageous and were in some ways formed by I think I remember reading at the end of Long Walk to Freedom Nelson Mandela talking about this generation of ANC leaders whose moral character was almost formed by the hardship of prison and um, but the the problem now when I look at Northern Ireland the problem I wonder is it a problem in South Africa that that's you you kind of don't you don't somehow have that urgency of I don't know, the moral leadership that has to emerge because you don't have this deep injustice as forming it. You know, I, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. And how, do we get, how do we get moral leadership and how, like what you're doing, how do we get that a voice and how can it... Yeah, I, I hear your question. Um, I also think, however, it's necessary for us to reframe the word morality. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's immoral 
that there are families that live on 450 rand a month. I think it's immoral that families survive on 4,500 rand a month when other families earning in excess of 100,000 rand a month. For a nation who uses a Christian narrative and a Jesus lordship as part of you know what we profess by our own admission without coercion, um, there's there's a need to relook at that from a moral point of view, um, and when we look at land ownership in South Africa, more than seventy percent of the land is still white owned. Twenty five years after our democracy, um, that's an issue of morality, and so I think the places where morality was forged, yes, there was Robben Island, but I think in hindsight, um, Frank Shikani is um, a lot more eloquent in the way he says it and has a lot more authority than I have to dare and venture an opinion on this. Um, but he says that the people who in, were involved in the struggle because they wanted liberation for everyone, but they also realised that there was a group of leaders within the ANC who were involved in the struggle because they wanted liberation and economic prosperity for themselves. And you can't fault them for that. You just have to acknowledge, oh, we were not all in the struggle for the same reasons. And so when there was an opportunity for economic prosperity, they took it. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm not sure I'm willing to judge that as immorality. Um, I think there are broader systems that create the immorality that we that we're needing to deal with and needing to address um, in South Africa. Mm. So on a broader, if we move out from South Africa, <clears throat> uh, a little bit broader to uh, a word that's kind of coming into more um, use these days, and particularly as I work for a Christian organization, um, is decolonization. Um, and uh, I wonder what, what does that mean to you? And um, can you give me a theology of decolonization or a practice of it? Well, I don't profess to be a scholar. Um, I'm not an academic. I'm a theologian. And so when I listen to the stories of colonization in South Africa, I see that um, colonization tried to do at least four things. I'm sure there are many more, but it was a reorganization of power. When, when the Dutch came, when the British came, when the French came, even though we weren't colonized by France in the same way, um, in, in other countries, it was this systematic, intentional reorganization of social power. There was a reorganization of economic power a reorganization of religious power, demonizing what was there and, you know, emphasizing this, um, un what's the word I would call, uncultured Jesus, <laughs> apolitical, um, ethereal kind of gospel. And then... Disembodied Jesus. A very yeah, definitely yeah. disembodied Jesus. Mm. Um, and what did I say? Economic, social, social, economic, religious power. Religious and, and political power. Mm. 
So they would set up new political systems, new economic systems, new religious systems, and new social systems by favoring a minority um, at the expense of a majority, whether that was in Rwanda or in South Africa or, you know, you go up and down this continent and you'll see many examples of that. Um, I call it Hunger Games Chapter One. Um, and so this story of the favoured minority at the expense of the majority is a, a Roman imperial, Babylonian, Assyria, you name the empire, Egyptian, all of them operated in the same way. Um, and so for us to, to talk about decolonizing, whether it's decolonizing our understanding of Jesus or decolonizing the way we read scripture or decolonizing our theology, um, I simply ask those four questions. What is the movement of power? And so I read the stories of Jesus and I ask the question, what's the movement of power? And so my understanding of the incarnation is Jesus is now born into this poor family. That's an economic and social relocation of power. Um, who does Jesus talk to? Where's Jesus baptized? Not in the temple, in the dirty Jordan River. That's a geographical, social, religious relocation. So you see this, this person, Jesus, who we love and revere um, before Jesus gets to the cross. The 30 years or 33 years prior to the cross, there's this reorganization of power in who Jesus invites to be his disciples and who Jesus spends his time with and who Jesus stops for. Read the Gospels and see how many times Jesus stops and then ask who does Jesus stop for. Every time Jesus stops, Jesus reorganizes power. He reorganizes religious power every single time. Reorganizes social power, reorganizes economic power. I mean, you know, from blind Bartimaeus to the bloody woman to the Canaanite woman with a sick child to, I mean, you just, the man with a withered hand who comes into the temple and Jesus says, come to the front. Like, it's, it's everywhere. Scripture is littered with the actions of Jesus reorganizing power. And, and that, for me, is the work of decolonization. Um, and we need to do that as Christians today, you, well, you would believe. I would say if you want to get to know Jesus, then you have to do that work. Um, you, can't, you can't follow Jesus um, if you're not willing to do that work. And, um, and it changes how you worship Jesus. Um, I've said a bunch of times, I've been in many places where people worship Jesus. And I can't follow Jesus without worshiping Jesus because I need to worship so that I can follow Jesus. But there are people who worship Jesus and don't follow him. You can worship Jesus and not follow Jesus, but you can't follow Jesus and not worship him. Um, and so those things go together. As I follow Jesus, I, I'm just constantly amazed and live in reverence and wonder for the courage and the conviction and the deep humility and the power of who Jesus really is and all that Jesus did um, you know, to stop and turn to a woman in the street who is bleeding. Like, that's not just a relocation of power. It's like, wow, 
Jesus declared himself unclean while on his way to a synagogue leader's home to touch a dead girl. Um, you know, coming from the other side. Like, all of these things that are just completely messed up in your mind. You don't get a clean, neat, organized Jesus um, that you can say, oh, yeah, 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 I agree with that. You know, there's like, no, Jesus, don't do that. You're messing with my theology. Um, and Jesus has to mess with our theology a lot. Um, and if Jesus is not offending us, then we're hmm. serving a domesticated yeah. version. Yeah. What does that look like for, you know, for those of us who are listening, who live in the, in the relative privilege of, of living in the West, uh, in the UK, USA, Ireland, Europe? How do we, how do we kind of decolonize our faith? In a, obviously, there's, there's poverty everywhere. Um, I think who you read the Bible with matters. I think who you read the Bible with will change the conclusions you come to. Um, some of the things that I've even shared with you in this conversation, the insights come because I've been intentional about reading the Bible with people who are poor. And they say, hey, have you noticed this? The Mary and Joseph bringing the two doves. Yeah, that's me. Um, you know, the refugee, you know, you can't read stories about Canaanites, about Samaritans, without sitting in a room with people who have crossed a border, and sometimes illegally, um, because they have insights into, into the stories of Scripture that will blow your mind. Um, I think you can't read the Bible on your own and come to any helpful theological conclusions. I think when we read scripture on our own, it's okay to feed our devotional life and our, um, and our desire to be transformed um, by this person, Jesus. But when we are wanting to do the theological work of allowing the character of God to shape us, then we need to be, we need to locate ourselves like Jesus did in the places where the stables are, in the places where the shepherds are, in the places where the prostitutes and the tax collectors live, um, in the places where we can be touched by those who are hemorrhaging in society. Um, and, and that geographical location will change your theology. It will, I guarantee you. Um, and those people are there, whether it's someone who is mentally unwell or someone who is challenged because they don't have documentation or someone who cleans your house um, and sweeps your street. Yeah. Um, I, I, um, I don't know what your perspective, your theology of the cross is, but I, and we could go on forever and we need to finish soon. But, um, you know, for me, when I think about reconciliation, I am informed by understanding that the cross is the clearest articulation of a God that would rather die for his enemies than to kill his enemies. And, um, uh, but then there's also a you know, myriad of atonement theories that go with it. How do you see the cross and, and how you read it um, as a South African? And what does it mean to you? Hmm. Yeah, I think um, the cross in its 
historical, political, geographic location would have to be an instrument of torture um, and uh, a public warning to all those who choose to differ from the status quo. You dare disagree, this is what can happen to you. Um, it's a reminder that love has a price tag, um, will require all of you, and um, that your sacrifice won't necessarily be celebrated. And so, um, as you said, this, this Jesus who is willing to be crucified and say, Father, forgive, um, tells a story of, of a God of love um, that chooses our humanity over our sin, um, that gives us an identity that can transform not only us, but those who choose to persecute us and hate us. Um, I see the cross not only ending um, on that hill, but leading us to a place of resurrection. Death is not the end of the story, and so we can, we can dare to sacrifice everything um, because the story is bigger than me. And, and the cross makes me need community, um, whether it's the borrowed grave or the women weeping at your feet or you know, those who come to embalm the body, the entire narrative is filled with stories of community and relationships of love. Um, Mary in the garden, they've taken my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. Um, that even in our lament and our pain and anguish, there's, there's a hopeful story that transcends um, the present reality of violence and injustice. Um, and then invites us again into a story of reconciliation. And I use that word lightly. Um, there's a pastor in um, Kailicha that we work with who, who once said, we can't reconcile what has, we can't reconcile what has not been reconciled. Um, and so what does that look like? You know, what does reconciliation in that context mean? Um, when you, when it's never been together, you actually you have to meet each other. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Lisa Sharon Harper in her book, um, The Very Good Gospel, um, goes right back to the Genesis story of um, Shalom, and and explains it this way. She says um, the Hebrew understanding of the word goodness is very different to the Greek understanding of the word goodness. Greeks understand goodness as something being inherent in something. This is a good table. This is a good chair. You are a good person. A Hebrew understanding of the word goodness is that which sits between things. It resides between. There's goodness between the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. There's goodness between um, the animals and the plants. There's goodness between the land and the sea. And there's goodness between you and I. And so how do we um, promote this Hebraic biblical understanding of goodness? Is there goodness between you and I? And if there's not, um, 
I guess the contemporary word reconciliation is what is required to bring about goodness. But goodness cannot exist outside of justice. Um, and so it kind of creates the space for holding um, all of those pieces for me. I guess the cross helps bring about goodness. Um, whether you're adhere to an atonement theory or yeah so it needs relationship um cornell west said uh, what justice is what love looks like in public and um so it needs relationship you can't reconciliation is not something that happens on a political in a a political parliament it's something as i reach out and and meet and and concile (laughs) with someone who is an other is uh, a uh, so we've, we're running out of time, so we're just one final question, if I can. Uh, just because people listening, maybe not from South Africa, may not understand it, and I know you know uh, Desmond Tutu, or you worked in some way with him. I'd love to, he's come to Northern Ireland, and he is, I guess, with Mandela, is the face of South Africa for many people. Do you have a story about him that is um, embodies something about the gift that he brought here and has mm-hmm. to give to the world that we can learn from? Can I share two? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the one is there was a, we were sitting and having breakfast and there was a young woman from Palestine who was at the table and, um, you know, people were given an opportunity to ask him questions and, and she said to him, how did you keep on going? How did you not lose hope? And he didn't even think, just like instated. We are resurrection people. We are resurrection people, and so we don't live without hope. Um, and he then went on to about a 45-minute <laughs> <laughs> exposition um, and returned to this, this we are resurrection people. Um, his favorite word is transfiguration. And so he says everything can be transfigured because we are resurrection people. So that's one story. And then the other is one that um, kind of is part of the legend of who he is. Um, We got to a a time in our history when um, people were being paid to inform security police about who political activists were or not. And one of the ways those people were treated, if if you were found to be an informer, um, they would do this very violent act of necklacing people. Um, and so for those of you who are sensitive in, don't listen to the next few lines, um, they would pour petrol into a tyre and put the tyre around your neck and then set it alight. Um, obviously the petrol would end up on your body and, you know, this was in some ways a crucifixion, a demonstration of this is what happens to people who betrays the narrative of liberation. And so there was one young person who was caught um, informing police and they had already covered him in petrol. And, and the, the tension in the country was so very acute. In the late 80s? Probably. Um, yeah, early, early 80s, I would say. Um, and, and if you intervened when someone was being necklaced, it meant that you were also an informer. Um, and so you would be necklaced alongside them. And so he saw 
that someone was about to be necklaced and he ran and threw himself on top of this person. And there were others in the crowd who then vouched for, they were like, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't kill this man. This is, this is our father. You can't do this to him. And so he saved the life of someone who was so obviously um, a recognized enemy um, because he's, understanding of Ubuntu and I guess this the story of we are resurrection people is just the stubborn hope um, that God's love can transform all things and all people um, yeah I I think those are two stories that that spring to mind and then just the last one if you walk around with him nowadays he's um he's too old to bend and so he won't walk past a piece of litter. And so there's, there's some friends who are just like, no, no, you walk with him. No, you walk with him. No, I don't want to pick up papers. <laughs> so he'll walk and then he'll just stand still <laughs> until, until you pick up whatever's lying on the ground and then throw it in the trash and then you can, he'll carry on walking. Um, but for his birthday party, he invited you know, a whole bunch of school kids to come to this open field and to come collect litter with him. Um, and so... You know, it's not just the liberation struggle, but the environmental struggle that he's given his life to, you know, dreaming God's dreams for all creation. Hmm. Well, Renee, I would love to keep talking because this is one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had. And uh, I'd love to keep talking about Desmond Tutu. That was brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) So, but thank you for being an embodiment of, of what I think Desmond Tutu brought to the world of grace humility, forgiveness, righteous anger, I think, um, and uh, embodied hope for the world and for your country. And uh, yeah, thanks for your graciousness and your time. And uh, I hope to see you again. Thanks for having me. God bless.